We started our morning out with a question, from where does my help come? We sang, O come, O come, Emmanuel, as a prayer. And then in song we prayed again, Lord, have mercy. Christ, have mercy. Lord, have mercy. Have you ever stopped to ask yourself, If the Lord were to actually answer that question, what would it look like? Would you recognize it when he answered that question in your life? It's related to the season because the season is Advent. And the question is presented to us in the form of the birth of Jesus in Bethlehem, a story that we are very familiar with. But do you recognize what you are seeing when you reflect on the birth of Jesus in Bethlehem? It's a question that is related to our passage in our continuing series, in our concluding season of our series in Isaiah. We're looking at Isaiah chapter 63 and 64 today, and even that is not complete, as we will see. And so I'm going to read some selected passages, and I do want to encourage you to um, open your Bible or open the Pew Bible to Isaiah chapter 63 and read along. But as you turn there, allow me to remind you that Isaiah has been dealing from the beginning with this question, how will a holy God, how will a faithful God establish his peace in his world among a notoriously and steadfastly faithless and rebellious people? And how will he do it in such a way that does not compromise his own character, his own holiness and righteousness, his justice and his mercy? And in a way and that maintains and displays the full integrity and glory of his great love. How would you like to receive that as an assignment? The answer, in short, is that he will do it himself. But he will do it in such a way that, re- that renders this steadfastly faithless and rebellious people an entirely new, faithful, obedient people of joyful and flourishing holiness. A people of peace. A people in this world of his invisible reign. And so as we continue to reflect on how Isaiah um, unfolds the answer to that question, read with me. Isaiah chapter 63, we'll we'll read the first seven verses, and then we'll skip on. So Isaiah chapter 63, beginning with verse 1. Who is this who comes from Edom, Edom in crimsoned garments from Basra? He who is splendid in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength. It is I, speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. Why is your apparel red 
and your garments like his who treads in the winepress. I have trodden the winepress alone. And from the peoples, no one was with me. I trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. Merry Christmas. Their lifeblood spattered on my garments and stained all my apparel. Joy to the world. For the day of vengeance was in my heart and my year of redemption had come. I looked, but there was no one to help. I was appalled, but there was no one to uphold. So my own arm brought me salvation and my wrath upheld me. I trampled down the peoples in my anger. I made them drunk in my wrath. I poured out their lifeblood on the earth. I will recount the steadfast love of the Lord, the praises of the Lord, according to all the Lord has granted us, and the great goodness to the house of Israel that He has granted them according to His compassion, according to the abundance of His steadfast love. Skip with me now to verse 10. But they rebelled. And grieved his Holy Spirit. Therefore, he turned to be their enemy and himself fought against them. Skip with me now to chapter 64, beginning with verse 8 to the end of the chapter. But now, O Lord, you are our Father. We are the clay and you are the potter. We are all the work of your hand. Be not so terribly angry, O Lord, and remember not iniquity forever. Behold, please look, we are all your people. Your holy cities have become a wilderness. Zion has become a wilderness. Jerusalem, a desolation. Our holy and beautiful house where our fathers praised you has been Burned by fire, and all our pleasant places have become ruins. Will you restrain yourself at these things, O Lord? Will you keep silent and afflict us, afflict us so terribly? Brothers and sisters, believe it or not, this really is an Advent message. This really is an Advent passage. It really is news of great joy to our world. Because it is the news of a God of powerful and steadfast love, which is what we celebrate at Advent. So go with me in prayer. So Father, we come to this passage at this time, in this hour, in this season, and it grates against our sensibilities And so by faith we come and we recognize that in fact this is the revelation of your abounding and faithful love to us. And so we cry out to you that by your spirit you would speak to us. Allow us to hear the good news of your great love and to believe it to be changed by it, to walk in the joy of it. To that end, Father, feast us upon the glory of your truth 
and protect us from error, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the great things about raising children in this day and age is that you get to spend about three quarters of your life at athletic events. And it really is a lot of fun. And it really is terribly maddening which is why I did not sign the parental contract at our Christian school so that I can express my madness on the sidelines, much to my family's chagrin. It is so maddening. Perhaps you've had the experience of playing interscholastic sports, and you play a perfect game. But you lose because, of course, the other team was playing dirty. Everybody saw it. It was obvious. And the refs were absolutely blind. It was right in front of them, and they didn't see it. Ugh. It's all so maddening. And maddening because it's beyond our control. If only we thought we could get a decent ref. If only our coach would actually call them to task. Did you not see that? If only high school had replays, we would never get out of the gym. If only we could take out that dirty player. Arg, we cry. Come, Lord Jesus. Lord Jesus, have mercy. We win because we're good, but we lose because the refs are terrible. It'd be different if Jesus were the ref. If Jesus stepped on the court and called a fair game or dealt with those cheaters over there. I pick on athletics because that's safe. We recognize it, but it's true, isn't it? It's a pattern of our heart and mind that plays across our life. Our marriages would be a lot better if the refs would call a better game, wouldn't they? Our parenting would be a lot easier if the refs would call a better game. My commute, my work, my career, if someone would just step in and put things to rights. It's a persistent pattern because it's true. Someone does need to call a fair game. Someone does need to deal with the problems on the other team. And the problem is that's where our thinking ends. That's where our thinking fails to adequately account for the problems that we bring to the game. To the job, to the marriage, to the family. 
And so, failing to account for this, we cry out, Lord, have mercy, Lord, come quickly. Oh, come, oh, come, Emmanuel. Boy, my life will be great then. Especially in the season of Advent, as we're turning our attention to Christmas, the celebration of Emmanuel, God with us, when we cry out for Jesus to come to exert his saving power in our lives and in our worlds, we tend to imagine, because of the way that we have been trained, that he will come quietly, meekly, mildly. Sometimes, however, when he comes, he arrives dripping with blood. And that is good news. Even though it may jar or offend our sensibilities. You see, Advent is only joyful. Christmas is only a celebration because of Jesus' victories over his enemies and our enemies. Those enemies that prowl all about us on the court or on the field seeking opportunity to destroy us, as well as those who dwell among us, the enemies who dwell among us, seeking opportunity to ambush us from our blind side. Never mind the sleeper cells within us, planted there by our enemy in the dark corners of our hearts and minds and souls, all awaiting the signal through difficult circumstances to be activated and so devour us. Advent is only joyful and Christmas is only a celebration because of Jesus' victory over those enemies all around us, among us, and even within us. Advent is the joy-filled celebration of Christ's victorious arrival upon the scene to definitively destroy this. That he arrives with blood dripping from his garments is the beating heart of our Advent celebration. And the basis upon which when the sleeper cells of our enemy are activated around us and among us and within us, we actually have the tools and the wisdom and the skill and the courage and the strength and the stamina to do effective and confident battle with them. Whenever and wherever we may encounter them whether it's in traffic or at a game or at the kitchen table. You see, because of the accomplishments of the anointed and appointed servant against our enemies, we can joyfully and hopefully and prayerfully wage lives of obedient peace and holiness as fallen people in the midst of a fallen world in anticipation of and participation in that day when the peace that he has begun will be perfectly and fully complete. We live in the season of his advents. Look, the servant has been introduced to us in 61 and 62, and so now in 63, it opens with, with the prophet or whoever it is that is speaking here, looking and he's seeing coming someone. Who is it? He says, who is this? 
who's coming from Edom. Who is this that's coming from Basra? In crimsoned garments. As though he's been treading out grapes dripping in blood. Edom and Basra in the prophetic literature come to represent, come to embody the great enemy of God's people. The enemy of God's people living in God's city and God's world. They come to represent the great anti-Zion, the great anti-Christ, the great spirit of every age that rages and wages war against God, against His purposes, against His reign, and against His glory, and against His people. It comes to expression in other parts of Scripture as Babel, as in the Tower of Babel, or Egypt, or Babylon, or Rome. Those are the best known examples, but they're certainly not the only examples. Moab becomes prominent in parts of Scripture. But here, the poet, the prophetic poet, has chosen Edom and Basra because of the way that those names sound like and play out with the image of redness and the winepress. Edom for red and Basra for winepress or pressing. Who is this then that comes from Edom in crimson garments from Basra who is in splendid apparel marching in the greatness of his strength? And then the answer comes at the end of verse 1. It is I. The eye that we've been introduced to in Isaiah chapter 61, the servant, speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. The word of God's righteousness has power and it is manifest in the mighty acts of his love that will be celebrated throughout the rest of the poem. God's love throughout Scripture from beginning to end is never an abstract quality. It is always a description of a concrete act of the mighty God in human history. God spoke and it came into being. The steadfast love of the Lord endures forever. God spoke and the Red Sea divided. The steadfast love of the Lord endures forever. The word of God's righteousness is the might of of God's righteousness. It is I, the servant. And so the, the question continues, wait a minute, this is not what I expected. The servant who in 61, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. Good news to the poor, bind up the brokenhearted, liberty to the captives. What in the world? Why is your apparel red and your garments like those who tread in the winepress? The short answer is because I have done what I said I would do. The grapes of the servant's loving wrath and vengeance have been trod. Some of you might recognize a reference 
coming from Revelation chapter 6, in which we find the Lamb, the great conquering and reigning Lamb, now opening the seals of human history. And at the end, we find kings and nations cowering and, and begging the mountains to fall upon them, to protect them from the wrath of the Lamb. The wrath of the Lamb. The wrath of the Lamb. And then we encounter it again in Revelation chapter 14, in which we, we encounter the harvested grapes that the Lamb, has, the Lamb has commanded His angels to go out and harvest the grapes, and they have thrown them into the winepress and trodden them. These are terribly frightening images for those of us who have been softened in our sensibilities by Disney's retelling of fairy tales. I was just talking with a friend of mine who got, who was so excited he got the original fairy tales, not the Disney-fied ones. And I read them to my kids and they have nightmares at night. <laughs> a conquering lamb? The wrath of a lamb? That's almost as absurd as a killer rabbit. Thank you. And just as dangerous to misjudge. A killer rabbit. Let me at him. But it takes a holy hand grenade. Sometimes it feels as though life is pressing us in a wine press and treading hard upon us and upon our world. We feel the crushing weight of our own sin and we feel the crushing weight of the sin of those who are around us. We feel it even as we seek to live, never mind the added burden of trying to live faithfully in a world of sin, just surviving in a world of sin, we feel ourselves pressed and trodden. We really do need, we really do groan under the weight of all of that. We really do cry out for someone to come. Not just to be nice, not just to help me feel warm and fuzzy inside on a cold and wintry night. Not someone just to be with me. But someone to fight for me. To fight with me. To advocate for me. To rescue me. To defend me. To deliver me from the enemies within as well as the enemies without. Brothers and sisters, you understand, this is the cry of Paul in Romans chapter 7. Oh, wretched man that I am in such a wretched condition, who will deliver me? I try and try and try, Romans 7 tells us, and I fail and I fail and I fail. Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me? It's the cry of Isaiah in the face of God's glorious 
holiness. Woe is me. I am undone. I am a wretched man in a wretched condition living among a wretched people. Is there any hope? The entirety of Paul's ministry and the entirety of Isaiah's ministry, the entirety of our Advent celebrations and our Advent lifestyles is the gospel's answer to that question. Who will deliver me? Can I be delivered? Is there anyone who can do this thing? The servant who arrives on the scene arrives as the one who has done it. With blood dripping from his sword and garments because he has done it. He comes with victory in his hands having definitively delivered his people and his world from his enemies. I have trodden the winepress alone, and from the peoples no one was with me. I did it. I trod them. I trampled them. I did it. The day of vengeance was in my heart, and my year of redemption, that great promised year of jubilee, had come. I did it. I looked, there was no one to help. I was appalled, there was no one to uphold. So my arm brought me salvation. My wrath upheld me. I trampled down the peoples. I made them drunk. I poured out their lifeblood. I did it. I finished it. I accomplished it. What a great scene! We're free! From our enemies. If this were Hollywood, the credits would start rolling as John Wayne, of course, rode off into the sunset. But it is not the end. This is just chapter 3 of a 66-chapter book. And in in the case of 63, it continues. It continues with verse 7. It is me, says the servant. I did it. I did it alone, and it is done. And so, verse 7, So I will recount the steadfast love of the Lord. Seeing who I see and what he, I have, what he has accomplished, I will recount the steadfast love of the Lord, the praises of the Lord, according to all that the Lord has granted us. The Lord, the Lord, the Lord, the God of covenantal promise and covenantal faithfulness who has done what he said he will do, so I will recount it. And so begins a prayer that will run to the end of the book. A prayer that models for us and sketches for us the posture and the pattern and the substance of real faithful life in the real world in which you and I live between the Advents. You see, the servant's accomplishment 
has destroyed the veneer of reality by which we have all been enslaved and exposes or reveals the real reality of our lives and our world. It is the revelation of Psalm chapter 2. Why do the nations rage? Which is what we are accustomed to. And the psalmist says, no, look beyond the range of normal sight. And what do you see? You see the reigning king laughing. Because he reigns with might and in victory. Rage, rage, nations. Rage all you want. His kingdom will not totter. His throne will not collapse. And so verses 7 through 9 the first, the first, the posture and the pattern and the substance of real life in such a world between, in such a life between the Advents and this world involves us remembering together and recounting together. What are we remembering and recounting? We are to remember and recount God's character as demonstrated by God's acts. I will recount, what is he recounting? The steadfast love of the Lord, the praises of the Lord, according to all that the Lord has granted, the great goodness to the house of Israel, that he granted them according to his compassion, according to the abundance of his steadfast love. Verse 8, they are my people, children who will not deal falsely. He became their savior. In their affliction, he was afflicted. The angel of his presence saved them. In his love, in his, pit, in his pity, he redeemed them. He lifted them up and carried them all the days of old. You recognize in that references, don't you, to the great Exodus redemption. Now, Isaiah is writing before the exile. And he wants here in this place to remind the people that as he redeemed once, so he will redeem again. As you weep by the waters of Babylon, remember the steadfast love of the Lord. For he is your redeemer. Remember it and recount it one to another. The mighty acts of his creation, the mighty acts of redemption is recorded for us in Scripture but also the mighty acts of redemption that you and I encounter every week. Brothers and sisters, we must remember these things and recount them one to another because our enemy does not want us to see them or recognize them. But in remembering and recounting it, we must remember and recount the fact that we tend to forget and we tend to be silent. We have opportunity to speak and we don't speak. Because after all, it sounds so absurd. Creation out of nothing? Dividing the Red Sea? Manna in the wilderness? Water from a rock? A crucified Savior? What in the world? And so we tend to rebel, verse 10, and so grieve his spirit. And we must confess that. 
We must repent. We must confess individually. We must confess together. We must repent individually. We must repent together because he is the great king and we are his people. And so verse 10, rebellion, verses 18 and 19 of chapter, of chapter 63, your holy people held possession for a little while. Our adversaries have trampled down your sanctuary. We have become like those whom you have never even ruled, like those who are called out. In verse, chapter 64, verses 5, you meet him who joyfully works righteousness those who remember you and your ways, behold, you are angry and we have sinned in our sins. We have been a long time. Shall we be saved? We must be willing to confess that as God's people, we are prone to forget. That as God's people, we are prone to wander. As God's people, we are prone to lose sight of the greatest mighty work of his love the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Our forgetfulness does not make it less effective, but it does rob us of our inheritance and Him of His glory. This is why Peter tells us that we are in danger of forgetting it and growing cold. We must confess and repent of our tendency to forget and live in expectant watchfulness. Verse 10, notice, they rebelled and grieved his spirit. But verse 11, but he remembered the days of old of Moses and his people. Where, where is he who brought them up out of the sea with the shepherds of his flock? Where is he who put them in the midst, put in the midst of them his Holy Spirit? who caused his glorious arm to go at the right hand of Moses, divided the waters before them. He was faithful to them in their faithlessness in the wilderness. He remained faithful. A, a history of faithfulness to the purposes of his promises, despite our own history of faithlessness, day after day. 64 verse 8. But now, O Lord, you are our Father. You are the potter. On the basis of your faithfulness, on the basis of your steadfast faithfulness, the fact that you are faithful to promise, faithful to act, you are, you are the one who remains faithful. So look and see, verse 15, come and act, 64 verse 1. Make your adversary know, wherever you may find them, around us, among us, within us, make your adversary know that you are the victorious one and the reigning one. Act on the basis of who you show yourself to be. Our confidence, brothers and sisters, is not who we were or even who we are, but who he is. Our rebellion does not change his faithfulness. Though his faithfulness involves both comfort and conviction because of his faithful commitment to the purposes of his promises, he is far more interested, brothers and sisters, in our flourishing holiness than he is in our personal peace, comfort, and happiness in any given game on any given day. And so it leads us 
not only to confess and wait and watch in anticipation, but to humbly acknowledge and accept. But now, O Lord, you are our Father. We are the clay. You are our potter. We are the work of your hand. We trust you. Excuse me. Sorry. We trust you to act in faithfulness to your character and to your promises. To acquiesce to God's working in our lives, brothers and sisters, is not weakness, but it is wisdom. It is not fatalism, but it is freedom. You see, this is the joy of Gethsemane. This is the freedom of Gethsemane. Nonetheless, not my will, but your will be done. This is the wisdom of the upper room, knowing his father and knowing he was going to his father. Jesus got up from the table and he removed his outer cloth and wrapped a towel around his waist and washed the disciples' feet. Because... We know the good, wise, and trustworthy, loving character of God as proven by his mighty acts of his great love. We can rejoice to lay aside our agenda and adopt his agenda. To lay aside our wisdom and adopt his wisdom. Do you see what happens? In this way, we actually become participants in his advent. We actually become participants in his victory. We actually become participants in the great work that he has begun to establish his peace upon the earth as it is in heaven. We actually become a people of the advent. We actually become an answer to the world's prayer Oh, Jesus, come. Because we are his body. Many of you are familiar with the book entitled Grapes of Wrath, which is said, written by John Steinbeck and set in the years of the Dust Bowl. And the title of the book comes from Revelation, the passages we referred to earlier, which are in turn rooted in the promise of this passage. The novel is about how one is to live with dignity and honor and integrity when everything around you, when all the people around you and almost every fiber of your being within you seems to be conspiring to destroy you. The secret, it seems, according to the novel, is to realize that you and everyone around you are part of something bigger, which remains undefined and unstated. It's just something bigger. But it points to a hunger for a reality that is revealed in the victorious coming of the servant. If Isaiah were a Hollywood movie, 
63 verses 1 through 6 would be that final climactic scene, all accomplished, enemies vanquished, freedom and security, happy ever after, finally secured, exit stage left, right off into the sunset, go out and buy a shake. But it is not the last scene. The final victory having been accomplished, we are now invited into the process of realizing that accomplishment. To strive to enter into the rest of what has been accomplished, into the rest of the servant's accomplishments. And so realize it. And so pull back the facade of reality, the veneer of authentic faux reality to expose the genuine reality hidden just beyond the range of normal sight, to be agents of it, to participate in it by prayer, worship, sacrament, and fellowship. Because the king has done it, come and make it so here and now. You see, Advent Christmas is the beginning of the servant's answer to our prayer, Lord, come quickly. The first Advent in the birth of Jesus, it, as the reigning king and the king's advent, in every gathering of a congregation is in his name, in his name since, until the great final advent when the king comes in glory, we celebrate what was begun with his first. You see, brothers and sisters, Jesus didn't come to relieve our reality. He came to reveal our reality. The arrival of the victorious king is the beginning of living faithfully in this world. He doesn't come to comfort us in the midst of our difficult situations. He comes to strengthen us, to encourage us, to equip us, to live faithfully as his agents in the midst of difficult situations, whether around us, among us, or within us, wherever and whenever we may encounter that. He came to change up the social and political and economic realities by pulling back the facade of what we thought was reality and creating a people who can live faithfully in the midst of it. Brothers and sisters, Christmas is not a time to escape the pressures of life. It's an invitation to enter more fully and more confidently and more hopefully into the pressures of life, into our dysfunctional families that gather around the Christmas table, into our dysfunctional workplaces, into marriages and families that have grown cold, into games with bad refs. He didn't come to rescue us from a bad game, but to equip us for the bad game that we might be instruments, his instruments, to make it a new game. That is what we celebrate at Advent. For the servant comes with blood on his hands because the victory has been won. And so Jesus...